When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome back to Realistic Sustainability. I'm Mike, and I'm here with Nick. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. And he does mean that because apparently, since we can never get our schedules together, we have started the early morning butt crack of dawn series. Yes, yes, they are. They are the butt crack of dawn. The the black happiness, as I call it, because it's black outside. The sun's not even out yet. By butt crack of dawn, he means like the little bit before the crack. I call it the bare minimum caffeination station because i have consumed one cup of coffee which means i'm functional i'm here i'm breathing my brain is firing at like one little like spark every 30 seconds so we'll see if we can make something entertaining out of this you guys might have to bring in the caffeine defibrillators and charge me up (laughs) well it is different for sure when you come in in the morning because you have to be prepared that's why today we sat and chatted for a while ahead of time instead of just going straight into the show like we've done in the past i think you're adorable but i can't think of a single time we've ever went straight into the show well we tend to talk we we tend to talk i guess i can give you that we do kind of bs a little bit just a little bit (laughs) well i have a couple of updates that I want to go through before we can start today's show. The Excellent. first one is we've done a hundred episodes. We a hundred episodes. We have completed. Which one was the centennial? Uh, let's see. I didn't even look. It was this last one. This last uh, episode that we did. You can't drop a bomb and not be prepared, Michael. I wasn't prepared. Uh, the hundredth total episode, and and obviously we don't actually count them in singles. We do by seasons. But the hundredth total episode was climate and disease. That's I wish I wish we would have been a little more prepared. I wish we would have known that so we could have referenced it then. That's super exciting. I can't believe we've been doing this that long. Well, we get to reference it now, and this this episode comes out a day after, so I can't exactly advertise it, but this episode comes out a day after we do the live show online, and that is our one year anniversary. Absolutely. I'm really excited about that. I'm I'm nervous because you guys are doing all these tests and you guys are getting everything ready to make sure everything is as flawless as possible. And because of my lovely anti-desirable schedule, I am going to be there for the show and nothing else. So <laughs> if there is a problem, it'll probably be me. Yeah, I doubt it. It's we all have our roles and it is where we're trying out this online system so we can do live in bulk with all of us together. Yeah. Listen, when it comes to bulk, I'm your guy. But when it comes to making mistakes, I'm also your guy. So we'll find out how it goes. We'll see. I want to remind everybody, none of us are professional entertainers. We're literally winging it week after week. We're just a couple of guys that like to chat about this stuff. Speak for yourself, Michael. I'm hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) You and your Nick talk. Yes, my TikTok. I, I I like I, I like TikTok a lot. It's it's fun. It's easy. I don't even have to think when I do it. And I was really excited. If you've seen the last one, I was really excited to find those aluminum cups. I, I was surprised, but it was cool. Well, and I think that I sat there and thought about the only thing that I see as a as a challenge is keeping them from being dented over 
over after a while they get dented and then you may not want to use them as often in a professional setting. Well, no, I agree, but I don't I don't look at them as something reusable. I mean, while they are and they do have a longer lifespan than let's say a Dixie cup, I just look look at them as an alternative to Dixie cups. I mean, I bought 24, it was like $3 and change. It wasn't expensive. It might have been $4, but it wasn't that different a price than 24 Dixie cups or 24 paper cups. I mean, honestly, the price is competitive and if you can buy those and you have the, you know, the the mindset and the ability to follow through to make sure they get recycled, then it's better than, you know, just buying 20 paper cups and throwing them away or buying the plastic cups that use usually, you know, you you might use five or six. So let's say you buy them for a family function, then they all end up scattered across your yard. The aluminum ones at least have a purpose afterwards. Okay. The other thing I wanted to update everybody on is the edible landscape project. Yesterday I went to a city council meeting here in Duran where we had to give the update on how it went because of course they funded the program and once i was done giving the update i asked for a recommendation that the city take it as a permanent line item which means that that program would forever be in the budget of the city of durant yeah because i think you had told before in one of our early episodes this was like a probationary period they were trying it out to see how it was going to work and then once it was over they make a decision to go further it sounds like it went well well, we had multiple people stand up and have testimonials about friends or family members that were able to come in and pick up vegetables and that they still are to this day, that they see people walking around with grocery sacks and picking and picking vegetables. And based on just basic calculations of the 198 plants that we had in the city, I assessed that about a 35% yield. That's about 300 pounds of fresh fruits and vegetables. <clears throat> Not necessarily enough for a city. But it's probably between three and four hundred pounds, which is pretty darn good for a well, start. I mean, yeah, but this was never this was never a a source of like a main source of food for the city. This was an option. This was something to give back to the people to entice them to come downtown to give them a reason to go walking. You know, it's not like you were gonna put ten tomatoes and two potatoes and like a cucumber at everyone's dinner table every night. No. sounds like the plants were highly productive and it sounds like it went over really well. And this means that you have to step up your game for your starter plants every year. Now, now your basement's going to become a jungle. <laughs> well, they did increase the funding to the program. Nice. We've added a couple of donors to the program and the city did take it on as a permanent initiative for the city of Duran for, for the foreseeable future. Okay. So Knowing what I know and watching the way it went, what really is an increase in funding going to accomplish? Because you well, kind of, I mean, you did a lot of it out of pocket, but a lot, it's not like you went and bought a lot of seeds. Most of them you just saved from other things and, and, and germinated them and started yourself. So, what, where is this funding going to be, you know, used for? Almost Sorry. all of the funding, almost all of the funding that we had to begin with was tomato cages and, and trellises and things okay. for stuff to grow on. Now, most of that we can reuse. So we have an increase in funding and we already have this equipment. Jameson has already made all the signs that we need. Other than a few, we'll have to have a couple for like, we're no longer going to grow pumpkins and watermelon in town. That's a lesson learned. We're going to create two large patches. But we could yeah. also use that money to pay someone to till an area. If there's money left over, we can add a few more trees. So every year we have this funding coming in that we can use to maybe widen the program, broaden it a little bit. 
I think it's a wonderful idea. I also think that when in the following seasons, when you guys are deciding the plants and stuff, you should kind of look at and do a little more homework on, on what individual plants actually need as far as sunlight and water and everything and try to plant them strategically. And like you said, like pumpkins, anything with a, a real big vine, you don't want necessarily to have a ton of sunlight. I mean, at least not pumpkins. So if you have a spot that's either that's wooded or that is behind a building per se, where they get a little bit of shade, they'd probably be a little better off. Yeah, there's a lot of lessons learned. We didn't get any sweet peas this year. They all got burnt. But not enough shade for any of the places that we planted them. So there's a lot of those little details. There's also, you know, this weekend I take the wood chipper around. We're taking all the dead plants and putting them through the wood chippers to create them. And just compost it right into the soil because we're still working on that soil. But if anybody wants to learn more, we've added some more information to the website. It's just greeningyourlife.org forward slash edible landscape Durand. And you'll find it under the podcast link. But it, I keep it up to date. It is all of the steps. Because one of the first things that happened was someone caught me right after the meeting and said, hey, how in the heck can you allow restaurants to use this food? Because we're still fighting the whole you can't eat food from public soil. And you can't as long as it's maintained correctly. And, you know, so the very first thing I had was a resident coming to me and saying, well, how come a restaurant can use that food, but they can't use it from the farmer's market? Which sounds really weird because it is true. If you pay for it, it goes through a whole different regulation than this. Yeah, so... Depending on on the health department's regulation, because every county is just a little bit different, because they they adopt the health the versions of the health code that at their own pace is a good way to put it. So the version of the health code that that Shabwasi goes by may not be the same as Genesee. In fact, I don't think it is. My first ever certification sanitation was in Shabwasi County. I would say that when it comes to produce, normally they, they, they want a paper trail. So if you're going to grow it yourself, if you, if you're a business that has a garden or like you're at a landscape and they, they want to approve of the methods you're using to make sure that it's any risk is mitigated as much as possible versus buying it from somewhere else. So if, if you have a receipt saying, I purchased it from this person, well, that receipt tells them one thing. That receipt tells them that if something happens, if there is a, a breakout of some disease or infection, they know where to go. But there's no guarantee that particular person actually has a commercial license to, to do, you know, food production or I guess agriculture production, however you want to look at it. And if they're using methods that are approved by the, the state or the county for um, people to eat. And I say that because it's it's ridiculous how how stringent they can be, you know, like with apples and stuff. And I, I, I mention apples a lot, but I just I love them. When you see all these these bags of apples and apples and apples every season that are, you know, for they sell them for deer feed and it, they're for bait. It's illegal to bait animals, but every gas station from like the end of July up until like the end of November has pallets of them. And those are called like bee apples or the ones that are picked out that aren't pretty. So they're, they're sent to be used for bait essentially. And it, that's, that's just based on looks. They're not bad. They'd be perfect to, to cook up and bake and they'd be perfectly safe to eat, but they're, they're, they're separated by regulation just uh, on the way they look. And I don't, I mean, that's just ridiculous. And let alone you have, you know, tomatoes and, and the cucumbers and, and, Michigan, so lots of bell peppers and sweet peas and things like that. So, I mean, there's a lot more to it. It's not just as simple as, you know, hey, I want to use this. As I know you had one business owner that uh, she was pretty uh, 
pretty supportive once she realized <laughs> that it whacked her food costs in half. <laughs> well, matter of fact, they're actually going to have to put in their own garden behind the building because even though we put a large garden in front of their building, mm-hmm. they were only able to pick periodically. They were able to get some of the cucumbers and some of the cherry tomatoes, but a lot of the stuff was gone before they got out there. The citizens were able to get to it and really kept most of the plants clean. That is actually, I think that's beautiful. I think that given the other options, that is probably the most desirable outcome. Maybe not for, you know, the business owner of the barbecue joint, but, you know, as far as the uh, the community goes, I think it's wonderful that it actually took off and people really supported it. Because when you and I had talked about this, like when you were starting to put the framework together of what you wanted to present to the city, um, and we had bounced around ideas of like negative things people could say or things they could use to try to combat it or just flat out ignorance where they didn't understand it. So like most things, when you don't understand something, you meet it with negativity just because if you don't understand it, it must be bad because America. And it wasn't near as bad as I thought it'd be. And all the conversations we had, I really thought you get a lot more, a lot more static on it. But you really didn't. You got a little bit. I mean, you and you dealt with them accordingly, but it wasn't terrible. The t- the community really kind of propped it up, which I think is great. And it got a lot of notoriety. You know, there's all different people that are reaching out to you from other countries, other states, and it's it's, it's awesome. Well, and I think the best part about all of it is, is that here we are coming around to the end of it and all those doom and gloom moments that people threw out at us didn't happen. None of those happened. All of those things that these people would say, oh, you're going to create all these problems. None of that stuff happened. Listen, you know, I I thought for sure that first thing was going to happen, you were going to shut the grocery store down. And then I and then I was sure that people were going to be hoarding all the tomatoes and selling them for drugs in other cities. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, just to highlight a couple outlandish things that we heard of in the process. Uh, in the meeting yesterday, I said every homeless person in the state did not come to Duran for free vegetables, although we have job openings, so it may have solved some problems. It still didn't happen. That was another <laughs> one that all the homeless in Michigan were going to be sitting in the streets of Duran. People are going to be in fist fights over apples and different vegetables. I think that there is a huge, huge stigma about homeless people and people that are disenfranchised without a house. I think we should actually go further into this on another episode because I think that the the stigma that people have in their mind about homelessness versus the reality of it, they're two very different things. And I find it really frustrating because it's not like, you know, like you plant a tomato plant and as soon as the flowers are yellow, a shining light goes in the sky. This is free food. And it's like, it calls like all the zombies. It's not, it's not like, there's not like this homeless movement to come like raid a small town. And, and, and you know what? Honestly, if you had a few homeless people show up because there was food, that's what it's for. Feed them. Right. Yep. Like, there's, there's, yeah. There is no acceptable response, but good. Have an apple. Like there's nothing you can say, nothing negative that I will support nothing we we spend this whole time calling it a kindness project you can't tell someone not to take it if it's a kindness project but anyways so i wanted to just (laughs) update everybody on these on these pieces before we get started but this week we're going to talk about fracking oh we were having so much fun okay speaking about things that people have an emotional response to and i think in some cases very legitimate response to them when you say emotional response, I want to clarify what you really mean is an ignorant, uneducated response. Most people have no idea what fracking is. I'm, well, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that they're not right to be wary of it. I'm just saying it, the word itself sounds like kind of like, Ugh. but go on. 
Nope. And just so for a basic understanding, fracking or advanced fracking is when they fracture the bedrock in the ground. By And then once they've fractured that bedrock, they inject water or other fluid di- directly into those cracks, creating high pressure, and then use boreholes in those fractures to continue to release different things. In this case, this is how you're getting gases out. So yeah, it's it's basically it's basically the extraction of natural resources based on the viscosity differences when you apply pressure. In this method, and it's not the only thing we do with fracking, which we'll talk about a little bit later. This is an oil and gas thing. This is something how we how we go get extra oil and gas when we can't find the easy sources. See, I've always been weary of it because I I have a very very rudimentary, very rough understanding of it, and my basic opinion of it is this and granted like i said this is a very ignorant mindset on it but i I try to apply it to like is is possible the real world as i possibly can if you take a big ball of dirt okay just like a big bowl of dirt okay just a big like an aquarium full of dirt right if you take that and this is a much smaller much more ignorant scale but bear with me guys and you see it in the middle of it or towards the bottom there is a sand okay and you use air to raise or pressure to, to raise it up so you can collect and remove part of it. When you remove the, the water or you stop, and so you stop the pressure, regardless of how you think it should work, because real life is messy, and that's not the way the world is, when the pressure subsides that you've created and you get everything you want out of it, you're going to leave a gap under the ground. Or in my case an empty hollow cave in the my bowl of dirt, which might be fine. It might actually hold up for a little while, but you know, plate shift, the ground moves, things vibrate. Eventually, if you do it on a big enough scale, you could conceivably create sinkholes or change the, the terrain to the land. If, if everything shifts and things start to move down, um, that could conceivably create a lot of problems for infrastructure and for, you know, the safety of people. But maybe I'm wrong, you know, just throwing that out there. We'll be able to talk about some of that here in a little bit. The And you'll be able to find out if you're right or wrong. Oh, sweet. I get to have a cliffhanger. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so one of the things to look at is there's been times where it's not been all that viable to frack for oil and gas. When prices drop dramatically, then they kind of stop production in that sense because it's one of the more expensive ways to go out and get fossil fuels. Oil has to be at like almost 50 bucks a barrel mm-hmm. for them. It's like their break even point. I think that translates to somewhere around a buck and a quarter gas, which right now is like half of what we're paying. But well, I haven't seen it that low in a long time. So then it should be. I mean, it's yeah, it, those days are gone. But there's a, I think there's so there's a reason for that because the United States fracks a lot of wells we have a tremendous amount of wells in the united states and that started around 2000 okay and all the way and all the way into 2015 is when we really dug deep and really started to drill a ton of wells in the united states we've gone up uh 1204 percent in the amount of wells since 2000 to today so you said 1200 percent yes We've, and we, 21 we now, years. Yeah, we now so have a it's like ton. 43 to 45% year, a year increase 
That's a heck of a curve. Well, and th- for fracking wells in the United States, in 2000, we had about 23,000. Okay. Well, wells. Remember, these are wells were fracturing the bedrock and, and pulling, and only fossil fuel. Keep that in mind because that will change later in our conversation. So, are these okay? Real quick, I just want to I want to interject a question. Are these mm-hmm. twenty three hundred or whatever number you said? Are, the, are these successful attempts where they do it and they get stuff out, or is this just attempts in general? Uh, they tend to get stuff out every time, so okay. it's it's easy to say, yeah, let's say successful because it's also a rounded number. I'm sure they didn't stop at twenty three thousand. Okay. Oh, thousand. Oh, geez. Okay. It, so from 2000 to 2015, we went from 23,000 wells to 300,000 wells. And from 15 to 19, we went from 300,000 wells to 949,140 wells. I think that the percentage of growth is a little off. My personal opinion is, is that when we started saying energy de- independence, it was really we saved our wells till last and that fossil fuels is starting to go away. It's starting to wean out. Instead of just leaving it alone, someone in the government tends to see that as an asset untapped. Mm -hmm. So it looks like we went from keeping it as a backup in case we ever needed it to a fire sale, tapping every single place we could. I mean, we've seen in the last five years, they were trying to tap into Alaska in in protected lands. Like they are really just looking for every drop they can find, do the fire sale, knowing that things are going to change very, very soon. I mean, we know our automotive market is changing purely because they're not going to make internal combustion engines here very, very soon. Uh, mm-hmm. 2025, you're going to see a dramatic change in the in the weaning of fossil fuels. So I think maybe that was foresight. And now they're just trying to sell, sell, sell as much as they can. But that is a, a massive amount of wells here in the United States. That's ridiculous. I actually um, had heard... I shouldn't say her. I, I did technically hear it, but I watched an interview with, with uh, Elon Musk the other day. And it, I don't know if it was four or five years ago, but he had made the comment. Someone asked him about like, um, why are his patents all uh, open source and free? And he said he, his, his answer was, I hate patents. Buying a patent or registering a patent is like uh, getting a lottery ticket to a lawsuit. And then he said um, also, though, and he goes, and I mean this, he goes, if, if someone takes our ideas technology and does a better job, builds a better electric motor, better batteries, better technology, and puts Tesla out of business that is still a net plus for the world. Yeah. And he goes, I'm okay with that. And well, um, and, and they still have to beat you at your own technology, which, yeah. you know, I'm sure it would be very challenging. I guess uh, I guess China has a, a, a complete electric called um, self-driving car that's supposed to be pretty impressive. The people, the early interviews they've done on it, because it's still in the testing, it's like they said it's like driving an airplane. It's supposed to be pretty impressive. I want to look it up here. Once we're off the show, I want to learn more about it. Well, I think we've got some more self-driving EV kind of stuff coming Mm -hmm. up later in the year or possibly early next year. There's there's a lot to talk about in that space. I did find some funny stuff is when you look up pros and cons of fracking, reading between the lines is kind of entertaining because... Even in the company who is trying to say, look at us, we're wonderful. Here's the wonderful things we're doing for you. It's a short, short section. 
on their website. Even the oil companies struggle with pros. Some things you just can't greenwash really well. <laughs> and so they're, and now keep in mind, this is the pros that I have found on oil sites. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this is not me saying pro. There is, to me, no pros to fracturing bedrock. But they have said that in the United States, that we hold one of the largest oil reserves. So that being able to get to those oil reserves is a pro, I believe, for them. Can't see where that's a pro for anyone else, including the nature uh, that it's or the environment that it's in. Uh, it reduces coal usage. No, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so one of their pros is if you burn our carbon you don't have to burn their carbon okay so this is where i cut you off and i get real irritated for four or five seconds mike for those of us who don't know not me but for those of us who don't know where's oil come from mike <laughs> dinosaurs i'm using all right dinosaurs. so well you really what you're telling me is that they are fracking to tap into natural resources oil gas which is essentially the the rotten, broken down, completely composted carcasses of organic material from millions of years ago. Dinosaurs, birds, plants, anything that was organic and alive is now this toxic black sludge. We're pumping out of the earth like we're popping pimples as fast as we can. And they're going to say that we have a large reserve. Well, I'm here to surprise you. The U.S. is really big. Granted, back then. We're talking millions of years ago, different periods of the, of the Earth. The the continents weren't exactly where they are now. They were moving, Pangea, blah, blah, blah. Still, though, it's pretty big. Is it as big as other continents? No. But when you look at the size of land that we have, and you try to amass how many different creatures lived and died on that, and I'm just talking animals, like if you do plants too, it's ridiculous, on that span of Earth, over across three or four hundred million years, yeah, I'd expect there to be a ton of oil. They are touting the reserves. They're touting that you don't have to burn coal if you burn theirs. It's like we got the biggest graveyard you're ever going to find. You want to see the corpses? <laughs> Sorry. Go on. They add job creation as one of their cited advantages, which, by the way, just in case anybody's wondering, old technology and old businesses have already weaned off the extra jobs. They tend to run as lean as humanly possible, where new technology needs extra people. They have to hire whole new groups of people to do wind and solar and all those things. So when they tout job creation, it's a much smaller number in comparison. Speaking of job creation, why, of all industries, has that industry not been automated yet? Right. Of all industries, the, what's your job? Well, we drill in a hole, then we we take we pull the drill out of a pipe, we put a bigger pipe on, and we pump oil out. I know I'm simplifying this. I know I'm probably offending people, but like, there's literally no reason to have like 50 people on an oil rig. Most of that can be done with machines. Well, and I think I think we do have an, uh, yet again another show coming up about humanity after automation, and most of the reason is because it's not socially acceptable. They're making plenty of money. They can keep a certain amount of employees employed. And they do that for PR reasons. It is surprising to me that they haven't started moving that cost into marketing because a lot of those jobs could be automated. They just choose not to right now. They continue to lower the wage, make the job worse and worse. And when people stop wanting to do the job, 
then they get to automate it under the excuse that no one will do the job. Oh, no one wants to do the job. There's reasons they're jobs and they're not passion projects. They're not careers. Of course, no one wants to do them. They want to get paid. They're humans. I understand. Right. So it just seems to be the natural cycle that I'm seeing. As long as they can make it unappealing to people and no one wants the job, then they can easily automate it without the blowback. Kind of like right now with fast food restaurants, they have big signs saying I'm hiring for $15 an hour. But if you walk in, they're going to offer you eight. And when you when you walk back out, they go, it is what it is. Let's put the terminal up there. People can pick their own. They say those signs say they're hiring up to $15 an hour. When you walk in, a lot of people miss that. Lots of places say we're hiring up to and they'll have a certain amount. Not even just fast food across the board, but especially like retail and any commission based. You can make up to this much. Well, you can, but there's a certain specific amount of criteria you have to meet to do that. So with like the fast food. They will hire up to $15 an hour, but you have to be an adult. If you walk in as a high school kid, you're getting minimum wage. It's low, and, and they don't even really have to pay you minimum wage. They can pay you a lower wage than that because you're a child. And so it's 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 a marketing thing. It's kind of like it's like I'm not gonna call it greenwashing, but it's it's a manipulation technique that's uh it's like selling a job. And people walk in, and I'd say probably one out of every four or five, and I'm making that number up, so no one please check that. Or if you do check it, let me know that just walk in because they need a job and they think the money sounds good and they, they get a job and they don't get the money that was advertised, but they need the job. So they take it anyways. And I think what you're going to see is less and less people taking those jobs and they'll automate them. I hope so. I really do. But anyways, another pro that was on here was energy security in case we make the whole world mad and have to go to war. Or no one can cut off our supply of oil because we have so much of it. And they say they use less water than coal. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a second. That's like having less sugar than a Snickers. It doesn't matter. It is completely useless. They use an immense amount of water in the process of fracking. That's how it's hydraulic fracking does that. They drill those holes, they push the water through, and then they pressurize it to the point of cracking. <laughs> it's literally what they're using. When they do that, what, are they, what happens to the water? That they use to pressurize it. Leave it there? Do they pump it back out? Usually it becomes steam because you've now fractured it down to a heat layer or heat barrier. Yeah, so they, they reuse so... that water a lot, but it can become they're pulling the gas, the natural gas, the oh. oil out of it. So they're 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 pumping, pressurizing the bedrock with water. It's so much pressure creates heat, it evaporates as, as part of the process. Steam comes up. So what are the odds that like toxic gases and chemicals are coming up with that pretty close to a hundred percent. I love good news. The remember the heat is the further you go down in the planet, the hotter it becomes. Yeah. It's more pressure. Pressure creates friction. Friction creates heat, but the same way going under the water, right? Our core is hot. So the further we go down, the warmer it becomes. So that's, they're getting to this point to where it's so far down that water can flash boil once they have it fractured. So they continue to push it down, pressurize it, let it pull the gases, natural gases and oils from the fractured lines, and then release it back up so they can capture it, pull it all out, and do it again. Yeah, it's not nearly as productive I, it's as the human, finding. <laughs> it's the human equivalent of like taking a stick covered in honey and jamming it in an anthill and then pulling the ants out. It's terrible. Now, <sighs> the con side... Of the pros and cons. That's all they had. That's literally when they were selling the best fracking can do. 
that was the list they give you. Oh, I can make a better list up, but go on. So on the con side, it's kind of intuitive. They have, they say a risk of, I say they have contaminated groundwater. Yeah. Right? They, I mean, I think it was Pennsylvania. There were several states where the gases had got into the groundwater supply. Uh, West Virginia, Virginia. And I have a hard time using risk. I'll give you high risk of contaminating groundwater, but just saying that there's a risk alludes that the fact that they probably aren't, but they tend to. It does end up getting those pockets of gases into groundwater supplies, causing all kinds of grief. Well, and that's my concern. That's why I asked about like what, what happens because when they do that and so, you know, natural gra- gas and stuff like that is great for like burning and, and using as a heat source. But when you run the risk of vaporizing chemicals and, and different things that haven't seen the light of day in 150 million years, you would think that there would be some kind of chance that you could make someone really sick. And I, I to me, that's not something that you need a degree to figure out. That seems obvious like so it's as obvious as distilling liquor and alcohol i mean you take it you boil it when it cools it turns back into a liquid well some things go up with the evaporation process some things don't yeah and methane methane does that's yeah so i mean it's something that needs to be taken seriously they almost every company says none of their wells leak impossible but every time it's there's been a measurement done near natural gas extraction points, you find high levels of methane release. Yeah. So really what it is, is they have a certain percentage of what they consider like acceptable loss or an acceptable, ye- like, you know, or reduction of yield. And it's just greenwashing terms to say an acceptable leak that if it doesn't get over that number, then they're not worried about it. And remember, methane, if not burnt, is a seven to ten times greater greenhouse gas than co2 yeah so all these wells nine hundred and forty nine thousand one hundred and forty, even if they all have small leaks are negating almost all of the action of reducing the greenhouse effect by burning by just what they leak Mm -hmm. and on the bright side they contaminate water so that people with wells and free sources of water now have to filter in multiple ways because of the contamination. Considering we're in Michigan and Flint still has sections of the city that struggle with water, that's pretty bad. Yes. Another con was earthquakes. Resettling of the ground. Usually at a a magnitude of about one to three. Judges, we are going to, uh, we're going to attack that in the I was right column. You were right. So now Oklahoma and Ohio are two of the most seismic states in the United States. See, that's kind of funny that it's in the Midwest <laughs> because we don't have, I mean, seismic activity can happen anywhere, really anywhere that there's a, a fault line or anywhere that the plates are shifting. But like, that's not something we're known for. That's like every time we have a tornado in Michigan, I'm like, we had a what? Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't have that. I mean, we just, if you look at statistically, the odds are really small. They're not zero, but I mean, they're not California. Well, yeah, when it comes to earthquakes, when you think of earthquakes, you just think of California. I I don't know another state that you think of it like that. But now Oklahoma and Ohio have gone forever without seismic activity. And now after about 25 years of fracking, they're two of the most seismic states in the United States. 
All right. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's look at, well, let, I want to touch base on why that's bad or not, not why it's bad. It's obvious that it's bad, but something that people may not think of. If you have seismic activity, um, and, and a one to 1.3 isn't enough. It's not going to, it's not going to drop your building. It's not going to ruin your roads. It's not, it's just a little rumbling, but that little rumbling is going to heavily, heavily disturb your wildlife in the area, the small ecosystems, like the animals and the species of like birds and stuff that are, that are acutely attuned to like the energy grid lines they see and, and the way the world is when that kind of stuff happens, it messes all of that up. It could easily, you know, completely destroy um, mating cycles and it could move migrations and it could completely reset the balance in an area or ruin it all together just because, you know, Oh, oil. Mm-hmm. Which is a good segue into ecological destruction, which noise, vibration, activity from the equipment, gases released, and wastewater. Remember, they do a lot of wastewater ponds to help separate. Yeah. So it is massively destructive to all of the wildlife around it, even just through massive vibration. Just through the ground movement, think about all the insects and the animals that live on the ground, just through the drilling process, through the extraction process, they have lived their whole lives and have never felt that, don't know what it is, and they're going to take off. Well, that that's what I mean. It disturbs the balance. And I, I love to use the word balance because it really is. You know, every every ecosystem we have in this country, any any place you have something other than humans, there's a balance there. You have certain insects that do certain jobs, bigger ones that eat them. And then as the food chain goes up, the, everything serves a purpose. When you start to mess with that, you start to see unforeseen circumstances that you didn't realize. So what if, you know, what if this happens and they have more and more uh, vibrations and they start to get bigger. And then, so what if the bees die off? That's my big one. What, what if for some reason it affects the bees? Of all insects, we need them. We <laughs> actually actively need them. And that terrifies me. I mean, it's it's one of those things where people don't even consider it like, oh, well, they're, they're, it's just a 1.3. Well, it is a 1.3, but a 1.3 to a frog is the equivalent of like you falling off your house. It's not like, oh, it's a 1.3. It's a 1.3 to you because you're a five foot nine, six foot human being that, you know, oh, the ground's moving. Oh, my phone is rattling across the desk. When you're the size of a pigeon or you're a frog or even a dog or a cat, eh, 1.3 is a little more substantial. Well, and it's one, two, three. So it could be a, a magnitude, a 3.0 magnitude here and there, 2.0, 1.2, anything within that window. But it is different. It's a disruption. It eliminates the biodiversity in the area because by instinct, everything moves away. Well, yeah, it's, it's natural to run away from danger. <laughs> it is. Well, you would hope. Fight or flight, baby. So beyond that, I told you that I would talk about the water consumption. So remember their sales pitch was we use less water than coal. Fracking uses 1.5 million to 1.6 million gallons for a single well. That's insane. Lifetime. Do they at least use salt water? No, no, no. Why? Why? Like why? That'd be well, a and I don't, I don't, as far as I know, everything I read said fresh water. That doesn't make any sense. Salt water makes sense. You put the salt water in the ground. It takes a little longer to boil, but it's going to get hotter. If you're going to frack, I mean, use that. The salt will stay in the ground. Well, and then I think you have issues with salting the ground later. At they're, that they're, far they're, down, at that far down, does it really matter? 
Well, maybe not. Well, I don't uh, know. I'm not, I, I'm not knowledgeable question. enough. Yeah, that one I'm not knowledgeable enough to answer. But now when I say 1.5 million gallons per well, over 949,140 wells. That's a that's ridiculous. That's an insane amount of water being used to get gas because that's really all it is. Now, I, I don't want to take this too far. But so I want to, but I do want to bring up that gas is not the only thing we frack for. Okay. There's a lot of confusion out there. A lot of times, if you say, I hate fracking, I love advanced geothermal. Geothermal obviously is the action of using the heat from the earth to accomplish something. Sometimes you have micro units that are shallow geothermal that heat homes. And they mm-hmm. use that exhaust to help heat their house. There's also geothermal plants where they do the same thing. They put water into the ground, it flash steams, and when it comes back up, it turns the turbine, creating okay. electricity. But there is standard geothermal or shallow geothermal, which you see a lot. It would be in, in sites a lot like Yellowstone, where the heat is very close to the surface. Mm-hmm. And then there is advanced geothermal which is fracking. They create a hole, they go to the bedrock, they drill their holes, they crack it, release that heat, send water down just the same way they do with gas, let it flash, boil, the steam comes up, turns the turbine. So a lot of people out there will argue, nope, I'm 100% against fracking, but I'll take any geothermal. It's the same thing if they put the word advanced in front of it. Shallow geothermal, good. That's perfectly fine. You're actually releasing some pressure from the surface. Mm -hmm. But if you're fracturing the bedrock to force a system to be geothermal, you're doing the exact same process that we use to extract oil and natural gas. And that's probably being sold as a greenwashing fracking then, just for a different purpose. That's terrible. Yeah, a lot of times you'll see it's a geothermal plant. Why would people be upset? It's because there's a there are some people who do know how they did it, how they set that up. And these plants last about 20 to 50 years. Depend That's the kind of window they'll give you, depending on how long it will retain its heat in that area. Mm-hmm. But I, on average, it's like 25 years. And then they just that that building is done. They move over somewhere else, break another hole in the ground and fracture it and start over. Advanced geothermal is no better than any other fracking operation. Okay. Which is why in a lot of our shows, when I talk about clean sources, I'll, I'll try to always say shallow geothermal instead of just geothermal because they, they get to fly under the radar under the word geothermal. There is advanced and then there is shallow. Those are the only two kinds. We want to be acceptant of the shallow and only the shallow. All right. I, I don't really have much to add to that just because I, I don't really, I didn't know they used it for geothermal in the first place. And I don't know much about it. Um, I do think that fracking in general should be stopped. I don't think it's something we should be doing, um, but it's something I need to learn more about. It's not sustainable. It's not a long-term solution in any way. We have other options now. Geothermal, shallow geothermal would be a nice supplement to the electrical grid. It can't be a primary, but advanced, it should be banned just as quickly as any other fracking. So we have some countries that are starting to ban fracking. 
Mm-hmm. It should it should be included. We need to stop fracturing bedrock. I agree with that. Because that's how we contaminate more and more water supplies. There's a lot of ecological issues that come along with that. So I wanted to squeeze that in at the end because I think it's very important that we tell people that, that there is a difference. So Mm -hmm. that when that information comes out, when the news or whoever says, hey, look what we're doing, we're all a little more informed. So feel free, jump online, look it up. Advanced geothermal is fracking so that wraps up what we've had for this week so hopefully everybody at least enjoyed our tired tired episode (laughs) although i think i'm awake now i think i'm actually kind of awake and ready to go i'm good (laughs) see we should have just done three of them in the morning rick but anyways that's all we have for this week i hope you enjoyed this episode if you did please share it on social media or with a friend Other ways that you can support realistic sustainability is by becoming a monthly sustainer on our anchor site. If you can't find that, you can find that on greeningyourlife.org. If you can't do that, that is absolutely fine. We want you to live in sustainable ways. Just leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Those honestly do help quite a bit. As I've said before, it helps us climb up in rankings, let people find us because the searches throw us out there more. And then... When they do look at it and see your kind words, they usually give us a shot. So thank you again. Just remember, all we have to do is get a little better each day. Little bit, little bit, big bit. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike. And I'm Nick. And we'll see you next week. Hi, this is Mike, co-host of Realistic Sustainability, the podcast, which you probably already know, but I'm also the author of A Beginner's Guide to Greening Your Life. That was the book that led to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and, well, even this show. It offers tips on promoting your positive footprint while decreasing your carbon footprint. So, if you want to read what started all of this, get A Beginner's Guide to Greening Your Life, available on Amazon, eBay, Etsy, or just visit greeningyourlife.org for more information. Thank you for joining the sustainable movement and promoting a greener future.